1952, a young woman named Florence Chadwick, she set out with the goal of swimming from Catalina Island to mainland California to 26-mile distance. And Florence was already a well-known and established open-water, long-distance swimmer. She was world-renowned. She was actually the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. But with this new goal on her heart, aiming to set another record, Florence was surrounded by boats. She had her family and some that were keeping eyes on if there were sharks in the water, and she had her coach and another boat that was there to cheer her on and help her know how she was doing each mile by mile. So she began to swim, and she was 15 hours in. But then her situation changed drastically. The weather turned, it got chilly, a thick fog moved in, and Florence lost sight of the coastline. She lost sight of her finish line. The fog was so thick that she could barely even see the boats that were surrounding her. And after a little further, she began to beg to be taken out of the water. But her coach was urging her on, you can do this. She was encouraging her to be persistent, letting her know that the shore was not that far away and that she can make it. She can make it to the finish line. But Florence was physically and emotionally and mentally exhausted, and she just stopped swimming. So they pulled her out of the water, she got into one of the boats, and they started to head towards the shore. And as they made their way to the shore, Florence discovered that she was a mere half mile away. The next day, she gave a news conference, and what she said in effect was this. I don't want to make excuses for myself. I am the one who asked to be pulled out, but I think that if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. How many times have similar words been spoken by you and me in the midst of varying trials that we face? If only we could have seen the shoreline, the finish line, we would have persevered and made it through. Trials are inevitable. No one can go their entire life escaping them. Florence faced a trial in an area of her life that she loved so much, and her devotion to her love of swimming wasn't enough to complete the goal, to reach the finish line. She quit. Likewise, Christians are regularly tested through trial. In fact, the Bible teaches that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. God regularly uses trials either by permitting them to happen or intentionally leading us right into the midst of them. He uses trials in our lives to test our devotion to him, grow us up in Christian maturity, and get the attention of others in our sphere of influence. And that's a hard reality for many Christians. And for some, when trial comes, rather than cling to God, they so often run away from him in the midst of their pain and their sorrow and end up in total despair. And that's been a major burden on my heart for our church. You know, there is a saying that we're all just one phone call away from immense hurt and pain through an unexpected trial. 
So the deep burden on my heart is to share with you from the word of God what it looks like to cling to God in the midst of any trial and testify to all of us this morning that joy in the midst of sorrow and heartache and pain and suffering is available to us who put our hope in Christ. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Acts 16, where we will encounter Paul and Silas under trial and see how they respond and how we can apply the same principles of response to our own lives. Acts chapter 16, you'll see there Paul and his companions, they had made missions plans, but they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit from speaking the word in Asia. And the Holy Spirit also stopped them from entering Bithynia. So their plan was changed again, and they went on to Troas. And while in Troas, Paul received the vision of a Macedonian man asking for help. So he and his missionary companions, they affirmed that this vision was from God, and they immediately head to Macedonia. When they arrived in Philippi, which was an important Roman colony in the district of Macedonia, Paul and his team went searching for a place of prayer. They came across a group of women by the riverside, shared the gospel with them, and a woman named Lydia and those in her household received the Lord and were baptized. And they spent some time together, presumably going deeper into understanding the things of God. After some time, Paul and Silas began to make their way back to that same place of prayer. They come across a demon-possessed girl, and so began the test of their devotion to the Lord. You see, that demon-possessed slave girl followed Paul and Silas around for a few days, crying out, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And after many days of that going on, Paul was grieved by the girl's condition as it was clear to Paul that she was bound with two kinds of chains. Physical chains bound by her earthly masters solely for their source of income, and spiritual chains bound by the enemy and the master of the occult. So being disturbed by the slave girl's condition, as well as this huge potential of the gospel of Jesus Christ being discredited as it's going out but being associated through this girl with the occult, Paul cast the demon out of her. And that sent the girl's masters into a rage You see, simultaneously, Paul exercised the evil spirit and exercised the girl's master's source of income. So they grabbed a hold of Paul and Silas, dragged them before the magistrates, and presented a deceptive case to them. They didn't tell them the real reason that they were so fierce. They didn't say, like, these guys just ruined our business. We're not going to make any more money. No. They explained their case in terms of religious illegalities. And so Paul and Silas were badly beaten, they were flogged, they were thrown into prison, and this is where we pick it up in Acts chapter 16, at verse 25. Please read along with me. At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. 
But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the word of the Lord, and I pray that it does what only the word of God can do in helping our hearts and changing our lives. Amen? I've titled this sermon, A Song in the Night, Devotion to Christ Under Trial. And as we walk through this account of Paul and Silas facing a major trial and testing of their faith, I submit to you that our very first response when trial comes our way is the response of prayer. Our devotion to Christ under trial is fueled by prayer. Take a look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. There they were in the worst possible cell in the prison, literally a dungeon. The inner cell was in the bottom layer of a prison that had zero sunlight. And on top of that, the jailer overseeing them reveals the callousness of his heart by fastening them in the stocks. This is a form of torture. It spreads your legs out until you're in the most uncomfortable position and stuck there. You see, the jailer had opportunity to to show a little bit of mercy, a little bit of grace, but he piled on to their abuses, and they're humiliated. And yet we find them praying and singing hymns to God. Paul and Silas, in the midst of a dark dungeon, through their response to injustice, shun an internal light of faith through prayer and song. And take a look at the expression of prayer through Paul and Silas. The phrase in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, translates probably more literally, praying they sang. My brothers and sisters, when your midnight comes, and it will, will you be found walking so closely with the Lord that your heart is yet holding a prayer-filled song to sing in the night. When you're facing a trial of trials, yet will you prayerfully praise our God? This is counter to our biological nature because from birth, our natural selves fight for self-reliance and self-sufficiency. You know, this idea that I can do it myself, I can get myself out of this situation, Whereas prayer wages war on the pursuit of our human autonomy. Resorting to prayer in the midst of trial flows from an already established lifestyle grounded in prayer. And we accurately call prayer a lifestyle because it is so much more than being reactive to situations. This kind of lifestyle is built on being proactive. You see, prayer 
is the native language to our identity in Christ. When we suffer, there is a choice at hand. We either turn our attention on ourselves, allowing ourselves to be consumed with self-pity, maybe even grow bitter, or we can turn our complete attention to Christ. The very trials we face kick everything we say we know about God into high gear. In the midst of suffering, what God has revealed to us about himself and what we actually believe about God is brought to the forefront and our real heart towards God is exposed. Do you still believe he is good? Do you still believe in his love and affection for you? Do you still believe he cares about the details of your life? These are the questions we tend to ask when things stop going our way, right? And listen, it's obviously okay to grieve. It's okay to ask God questions. It's just not okay to question God. Do you know the difference? Because it's a big one. Asking God questions is part of the personal relationship we have with him. Because we know his character, we know he is good, we know his love and affection for us, we know he cares about the details, we can't quite make sense of what's going on, and we, so we ask God, hey, like, I know who you are, God, and I know what you're capable of doing, so what is going on here? But questioning God, on the other hand, is to make accusations against God's character, You're not really who you say you are, right, God? You're not really good, are you? You don't actually love me. You don't really care. If you did, I wouldn't be in this right now. Questioning God minimizes the truth of God. And the truth is there are layers of purpose God has for us that can only be learned through trial and remaining devoted to Christ. But we must not quit before the purpose is revealed and the lesson is learned. Listen to what Paul the sufferer writes to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 5. He writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. What? Why would we ever want to rejoice in our sufferings? We rejoice in our sufferings, Paul continues, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope is a powerful gift to believers, so powerful that Paul begins to close out this very same letter to the Romans with a prayer of hope. He writes in Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Through hope in him, God works out the miraculous in the depths of our souls in the midst of trial. Hope gives us out-of-this-world vision. 
Hope allows us to see beyond the trial in front of us and see everything through the lens of a kingdom perspective. When we ask God questions, we may not get an answer right away, but in the waiting is more opportunity for growing even deeper in hope in the Lord. I I truly believe this. Sometimes no answer or silence from the Lord is the best thing for our souls because we grow in hope and hope does not put us to shame. God is always at work in some way, shape, or fashion in the midst of our trials. And may knowing that truth give you deep, life-transforming hope like it did Paul and Silas, who didn't question God nor grumble and complain. They remained devoted with lacerated backs and limbs feeling like they might break at about midnight. They prayed songs. During our missions conference this past October, Rebecca and I had the privilege of hosting one of the missionaries in our home, Marty Frisk. And Marty was a missionary in Turkey for years. And as Rebecca and I were preparing dinner for him, he started telling us about a time that he was thrown into a Turkish prison. Marty and his wife and his two missionary partners, they were married as well. They were woken up early one morning by the police, and they were hauled off to jail in Turkey for being Christians. And he began to describe the experience in jail. Dark, cold, moist. He said that they were given blankets that had been urinated on to use to keep warm. And to protect their wives in the jail cell, he and his friend had to fight off, he said, about a dozen rats They were coming up through a hole. They were consistently coming up through this hole in the ground in their jail cell. And Marty said at one point he was thrown into solitary confinement. The police were hoping that that would break him. So I asked him, of course, like, what did you do when you're by yourself in solitary confinement? And he said, I prayed and I sang every worship song that I could remember. He said that he sang for so long And so passionately that the police came, used choice words to tell him to be quiet, took him back out of solitary confinement and threw him back in the other cell with his wife and his friends. In a very real sense, to the extent that our hearts can sing to God in the midst of suffering, is the extent to which we are truly fully devoted disciples of Christ because we truly believe that God is still exactly who he says he is. Devotion is not simply a five-minute session with God a couple times a week using the Bible app verse of the day when we can fit that in. Devotion is an unyielding commitment to God no matter the challenges surrounding us. In the easygoing times, we never forget the Lord In the midst of trial, we cry out to him. But in either circumstance, devotion is manifested 
As we teach our hearts to sing, even amid tears streaming down our faces with sorrow in our hearts, we can sing because we know, as one author puts it, God is enough, God is constant, God is present. In our trials, the loss of a loved one, a struggling and challenging spouse, a prodigal child struggling to get pregnant, the loss of a job, fill in the blank with what you face. Even those of you who are considered silent sufferers, those with varying kinds of degrees of autoimmune disease and other chronic illnesses, the kind of suffering that no one sees simply by looking at your face or your physical appearance. I just want to testify to you this morning that God sees you. He loves you. And he is working out something good. And please believe that God is enough. God is constant. God is present. And because of that truth, you can have joy in the midst of sorrow. There is absolutely nothing that can come our way that can remove the joy of the Lord from our hearts unless we allow it. And if we are committed to prayer, the Lord will not allow that joy to be removed. He will hold us. You know, our prayer and praise in the midst of our trials has a far reach beyond ourselves. Devotion to Christ under trial has far-reaching effects beyond ourselves. The purpose of our trials doesn't just end with us. So often, God has a purpose for others through the trials that we endure. I'm only speculating here, but I imagine Paul and Silas in the prayer-fueled songs flowing from their hearts, most likely being psalms that they had memorized. And maybe what they were prayerfully singing were any number of the psalms of ascent, you know, the psalms of 120 to 134 in your Bibles. The psalms of ascent, they have a very special purpose. All 15 of them contain the sentiment of hopefulness rooted in remembering all that the Lord has done and will do. And the Psalms of Ascent, they always have a call back to hope and joy in the midst of trial. So maybe take Psalm 121, for example. We know this, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Or Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope more. My soul waits for the Lord. More than for the watchman in the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. I imagine Paul and Silas going through psalms like these. And no wonder, look back at verse 25, the other prisoners were listening to them. The other prisoners could have been yelling at them, telling them to keep quiet, maybe even threatening them. But they were listening. You see, our prayer songs express the truth of God's nature to others. 
truth of God's goodness, faithfulness, love, care, and provision, and more. Through Paul and Silas, we're heading straight up directly to God, a pure vertical communication between them and God. But simultaneously, God, by his grace, was doing something horizontally among the other prisoners in that dungeon that they would be listening to them. The consistency of the joy of the Lord emanating from our hearts, manifested through our actions during troubling times, is an effective testimony to Jesus Christ. Devotion to Christ and steadfast character under trial are inseparably linked together. Our devotion and character radiate influence on those in our vicinity. Take kids, for example. We should never underestimate the impact of the reach of our private communion with God to those onlooking little observers, the kids in our home. Is the God we present to our kids when times are good the same God we present to them when times are tough? Or do they see and hear a change in our so-called faith or a change in our character? Our kids will copy us as they observe how we respond to different challenges we face. They'll copy us. So, from what you and I are presenting to them in our homes, what they're observing of us, are we in fact raising holistic worshipers of God? Or are we raising little cynics towards God? Over Christmas, my kids received a number of Lego sets as gifts, and Ethan, my middle son in particular, he received a Lego set that didn't come with a physical booklet of instructions. Instead of an old-school instruction booklet, it's called Build With Story. So you have to go through their Lego app. you got to download it and go through their app, and I wasn't getting it. Even on the app, I downloaded it, and I was just going in circles. I could not figure out how to get these instructions, and I was getting so frustrated, and I literally sent my kids to the other side of the room. I said, leave daddy alone, go sit on the couch, read some books while I figure this out. This is dumb, is what I said to them, okay? In the moment, I didn't think anything of it. I get it all figured out after some time, so I build my kids' Lego set, but two days later, we're downtown Toronto, we're skating at Nathan Phillips Square, and we're leaving, and we're in the underground parking, walking back to our car, and Micah comes running up beside me, and he says, Daddy, Daddy, remember the other day how long it took you to get those instructions? That's just dumb. (laughs) And I was like, I've broken my kid. And this is just a simple example, but if my six-year-old is going to observe and copy me in a simple Lego-building exercise, by the way, I just turned 40 years old, and on the box it says that a six-year-old could figure this out, right? (laughs) But if he can copy me in something as simple as that, how much more will he observe and copy me in a more weighty trial? Parents, one of the best things we can do for our kids is disciple them how to persevere and endure with character through trial and suffering. In part, they get that training from us as they observe how we handle difficult situations, and in part, they get that training from us as they observe how we allow them to handle adversary when it comes their way. We do a great disservice to our kids when we allow them to quit when things get tough in their lives. 
This only sets them up for failure after failure when they get older. Tough times come their way and they've been trained to have a mentality to quit rather than stick it out. And we're literally seeing this in our generation. They quit on their jobs so easily. They quit on educational pursuits so easily. They quit on their marriages so easily. Why would we not expect for them to quit on Jesus and the church when tough times come? We also do a disservice to our kids when we jump in and bail them out of every situation right away. We're causing them to miss out on important God-sized life lessons. What we need to do from the time our kids are young is use every situation and opportunity to build devotion in Christ to them no matter what challenge they are facing, no matter the degree of suffering they are under. But how often do we ourselves bail out and then counsel our kids to bail out of situations just because they're tough and uncomfortable. We quit before we get to see the fruit of the purpose, not just for us, but for others. We truly need to broaden our perspective. Too often we can't look past a problem right in front of our faces when the scriptures teach us over and again, that we need to weigh everything in light of eternity and in the very near term, seek to learn something new about the character of God, like the infinite dimensions of God's love or the comfort of God's very real presence or the provision from God's hand to help us endure to the very end, or the foresight through God's vision to see how this trial will advance the kingdom of God on earth. More often than we may realize, our suffering is about way more than us. Rather, our devotion to Christ under trial allows open doors for gospel opportunities as others see the trial we're facing, observe how we're responding to it, and listen to how we speak of our God in the midst of it all. The calloused-hearted jailer surely was witness to the character and devotion of Paul and Silas who walking in such humility to put the interest of others above their own were vessels of God in saving the children in two ways. First, look at verse 27. There must have been a prisoner convicted of murder and was on death row among those that were in that dungeon down there. And we know this because of the jailer's initial reaction to draw his sword to commit suicide when he thought everybody was gone. That was part of the job description. If a prisoner were to escape under your watch, you would receive whatever punishment it was that that escapee was going to get. In this case, death. But Paul stops him. We're all here. Don't harm yourself. And just think of that for a second. The character and devotion of Paul and Silas was so gripping to those prisoners that were listening to them that although they had an open door to flee, their chains were off, jail cell doors open, they could have fled like the criminals that they were, they'd rather stay and find out more about this awe-inspiring all-consuming, praiseworthy God 
The jailer is saved in a second, more important way. While the earthquake causes the foundations to shake, the devotion of Paul and Silas and their influence on the other prisoners caused the jailer's heart to shake and asked the great question, a question more important than any other in all the world. What must I do to be saved? Answer, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Often it is the message of the cross lived and demonstrated that God uses to open a heart to the gospel, to soften somebody to be more receptive to it. But it is the message of the cross proclaimed through which the power of God saves those who believe its truth. The example of Christianity alone saves no one. Rather, it is the message of Christianity, the gospel itself, that is the power of God for salvation. But are you willing, if God so chooses for you and for me, to endure trial and suffering to get you into a position, whatever that position may be, where the gospel can go out and save someone? Are we that devoted to Christ above all? to lose what we have to lose. There are three underlying battles that Paul and Silas face that we all face. Consider their physical battle. They have been badly beaten, tortured even, but their devotion was superior to the physical pain they experienced and their prayer song was stronger than any anguish. Emotional exhaustion was another challenge in battle for them. How often do we adults use exhaustion as an excuse for our behavior? Honey, I'm sorry I spoke to you like that. I was just tired. I'm sorry I treated you that way. I just didn't get a good sleep last night. God, I'm sorry I turned my back on you in that situation. I was just so exhausted and gave in. Paul and Silas would have been emotionally exhausted. They had been there for hours at this point and in pain and facing the uncertainty of what's coming next. It was now midnight. This is typically a time when you and I are getting a good night's sleep, right? But they couldn't sleep bound in those stocks. But their devotion to Christ was superior to the natural human needs of a fatigued body. Likewise, we need to draw upon the power of the Holy Spirit to battle through exhaustion in our time of need. Lastly, consider their mental challenge in battle. Physical prisons are designed to serve as a prison of the mind as well. That's what prisons do. They're designed to make you feel trapped physically, absolutely, but trapped mentally too. And in the midst of suffering, we face the challenge of a battle for our minds, a battle for our thoughts. Things try to fog up our minds so we can't see our shoreline clearly anymore, and we just quit. That's exactly where the enemy wants us. Fog up our minds, fog up our judgment, can't see past our affliction so that fear and anxiety set in and bring doubt along with them and take our eyes off of Christ and quit. But Paul and Silas, their devotion was superior to the attack on their minds. 
they turned immediately to the word. These are the three battles that we face that test our devotion to Christ under trial. In February 2015, my grandma on my father's side passed away. And two days before her funeral, my dad was admitted to the hospital and diagnosed with a rare blood disease. So I literally, against the doctor's orders, wheeled my dad, because I obeyed him, to his mom's funeral and immediately returned him back to the hospital in that same wheelchair. Now, I was at the hospital with my dad at some point every single day from when he was admitted in February until June. And I began to lead my dad in Bible devotions while I was there every single day. And I also brought his CD player one time and, uh, and left it in his room so that we could listen to worship music at any time that we wanted. And this went on for months. And mid-June comes around and the doctor gave my mom and I the news that no one wants to hear. There's nothing more we can do for him. He has a matter of weeks to months to live. My dad would have said that he was a Christian, but I just, growing up, I just didn't necessarily see that fruit. So that very day that I got that news from the doctor, I led my dad through a devotion in John chapter 3, Jesus and Nicodemus. And at the end of it, I asked him, I said, do you understand what Jesus was teaching? And he said, no, can you please explain that to me? So I did, and I shared the gospel with him. And I said, Dad, do you believe in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior? Do you believe that he died for your sins and was raised from the dead so that you can live? And he said, yes, and yes, and amen. And we rejoiced. The very next day I went in, and he couldn't talk anymore. His eyes opened, but he literally could not talk anymore. He was aware. He could understand everything you were saying, but he could not talk. He would not have been able to make that same profession that day that he made 24 hours earlier. The very next day I went in, and he couldn't open his eyes anymore. The very next day I went in was Father's Day. And I brought him a card, and I sat on his bedside, and I read him that card, and I prayed over him. And after I said amen, he sounded like he started to choke. So I ran, and I got the nurse. I left my mom there at his bedside, and the nurse comes running in, and she listens to him, and she says, this is it and starts looking at her watch. And so I'm just starting to break down, and I ask God, why? Why is this happening? And I started thinking of all the things that my dad was going to miss, my engagement to Rebecca, our wedding, our kids, his grandkids. And I was like, why, why? I don't, I don't get to experience this that everyone else gets to experience with their dads. And I know that children are supposed to bury their parents, but I was only 31 years old at the time, and I'm like, it's not supposed to happen this young. God, what is going on? So I'm clinging to my dad and arm around my mom and streams pouring down both of our faces, and I'll never forget what God did. He turned my attention to a song that was playing on that CD player. And the artist was saying over and over again, I guess it was the chorus, there is nobody greater there is nobody greater. There is nobody greater than you. And he's, he's listing these things in his song. I've searched the world for this and that, and there's nobody greater than you. And I hear the Lord speak quietly into my heart, do you believe this? Am I enough? I said, yes, Lord, I believe. 
And I can tell you that the Holy Spirit literally moved me to quiet worship in my heart to the Lord at my dad's last breath. Streams pouring down my face and all. I was physically tired from daily hospital visits for four months. I was emotionally exhausted. The fog tried to get in and cover up my way, but for Christ. And church, I seriously don't think that I'm anything special. I'm an ordinary guy. I don't share this with you because I think I'm special. I share this with you because of what I learned. The same spirit that empowered me to feel and receive God's comfort in my midnight is the same Holy Spirit that richly dwells within you, child of God. It's the same Holy Spirit that filled Paul and Silas so that at about midnight they prayed songs to God. And this is what I learned in that season of suffering that, I'll be honest, in many ways that suffering still continues, that pain still continues as more milestones come that my dad is not physically present at. But I learned if nothing can separate us from the love of God, not death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including any trial or tribulation or any kind of suffering, if none of it can separate us from the love of God, what could possibly seal our lips from ever praying and praising him. There really is a kind of peace and contentment we can experience in the depths of our souls that comes through prayer and praise. You and I will suffer, but I pray that we will suffer well when that day comes and know the joy of the Lord through all of it, and remain devoted to Christ under any trial that we face. Amen? Father, you are so good. You truly are so good all the time. And we thank you that you are our helper. You empathize because of all the sufferings of Jesus that he faced. You know what we go through here, and you have not left us alone. You've given us your Holy Spirit, God. So even for that, we praise you and we thank you and we ask you for our help in the days and weeks and months to come. When we face adversary, be our strength. Help us to cling to you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Years after this account in Acts, Paul writes to that very church that he planted in Philippi and he writes to them while enduring yet another prison cell this time locked away in a prison in Rome. And he pens this letter to them in the midst of the church of Philippi that he planted going through an intense trial themselves. So surely as he wrote, there's memory of his time there with them and in that dungeon comes to mind. In that context, Paul pens this. It's a passage we all know so well, Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
And he says the secret to this contentment that he finds in any situation, he writes, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. The secret? I can do all things through him, Christ, who strengthens me. All we have is Christ, and he truly is sufficient for all of life. Will you take an unflinching hold of that truth? I pray that we will, church. If you need prayer, there will be some of our pastors down here at the front. And if you're visiting with us today, we would love to connect with you in our, in our connections room. God bless you all, and enjoy the rest of your day in the Lord.